0: Welcome to the Flabby Bottom Flying Club Studios and the EAA Chapter 84 Podcast. I'm your host, David Weber. We are back this month with a fantastic podcast featuring a guest that has so many accomplishments it's hard to talk about all of them in one episode, but we will try. If you have listened to Episode 4 in this series, you might be somewhat familiar with my guest for this month. She is someone who has been a pioneer in many ways and yet carried the torch to a higher level for many people close to her. I think you will greatly enjoy my interview with retired Colonel Eileen Borkman, and coincidentally, the daughter of world record holder Arnold Ebnetter. Eileen, if I may, also has many accomplishments outside of her exceptional military career, such as multiple degrees, including a PhD from the George Washington University, author of two books and a third about to be released, dozens of published articles, and what I find to be most impressive, a B-17 type rating. You are in for an incredible interview of what I think is one of the best hidden gems we have in the chapter. We once again conclude the podcast as I bring you the latest Chapter 84 news, including updates on meetings and events. Please, If you are enjoying these podcasts, I would encourage you and ask you to subscribe to the EA Chapter 84 podcast. Doing so helps keep this podcast going, but more importantly, it will help you know when a new podcast is available. We will be right back with our interview of retired Colonel Eileen Berkman after a quick break. Well, welcome to the Flabby Bottom Flying Club Studios. And uh, this evening, I have what I call one of EA Chapter 84's hidden secrets with me. Eileen Borkman, welcome to the studios.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me, Dave.
0: Well, I'd like to go through this list of accomplishments that you have, but I think we would run out of time. So, um, I'm just gonna tell people that if you're an author, You've got two published books and one on the way, is that correct? Yes. Multiple articles and everything from uh, aviation, EAA, sports magazine, everything along those lines. I don't know how many articles. I stopped counting after 12, so you, you must have at least 20 or.
1: It's probably about 20 at this point. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Incredible. <laughs> um, retired colonel. Yes. Long career in that. Uh, flight test engineer. Over 700 hours and 25 different types from F-4s to C-130s. Yes. That's incredible. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then, of course, your education. You got a master's in aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Air Force Institute of Technology, which I believe your father graduated from too, right? Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Absolutely wonderful. A B.S. from the University of Washington Computer Science where do you find time?
1: (laughs) As I said, I don't watch TV.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, good to you. And then I think the last one I had here was a PhD in system engineering from George Washington, the George Washington University. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's, that's crazy. That's great. But let's talk a little bit about your youth and how you ended up getting into all this stuff. Uh, I know that your dad, being an Air Force and Air Force family, you must have moved all around.
1: We did, yeah. We, we lived all around the United States, uh, never overseas. Um, but uh, I was born in Texas and uh, lived in a bunch of different places. I graduated from high school in Illinois. And right after I graduated from high school, my dad retired uh, from the Air Force and went to work for Boeing. We moved out to Seattle and so I went ahead and moved out to Seattle with the rest of the family. And How old
0: was, this? What, what year was this? That this was, was uh,
1: 1974 okay. and uh, I went to the University of Washington and uh, the family has stayed in Seattle since then and I consider Seattle my home now. Because
0: you, your family has a rich history in the area. Your dad taught down at Harvey Field for years and years and years and I imagine that's where you did your original flying?
1: No, I actually didn't start uh, learning to fly till I, after I joined the Air Force. So. Really? Yes. Yeah, so yeah.
0: <laughs> but your mom was a pilot too. She was.
1: She was. Um, you know, and I'm not really sure, but growing up, I just never really—I'm not sure why—but I just never really had that much interest in airplanes when I was growing up. Um, you know, I don't know if that was because they were around me all the time, and I didn't see them as something special, or or just a sign of the times. You know, women didn't. You know, my mother was a pilot, but I never really saw her flying a lot, and, you know, I didn't see women pilots, uh, you know, it just, I, you know, at that time, there were very few women in the military, and so, you know, I, I, I just didn't see it as a, I, I never even considered it as a career option originally, so.
0: So there just wasn't that bug that, that, that was there until you got into the Air right, Force. Right, right. Now, what about so. siblings?
1: So I have three sisters. Okay. Yeah, and none of them were ever interested in airplanes either. And I'm actually the only one that ever got into airplanes. So yeah.
0: <laughs> well, when you did it, you did it well. That's for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. I definitely jumped in with both feet. So yeah. So um, right after I graduated from college, uh, I uh, had my degree in computer science from Uni- University of Washington. I worked for a year um, and decided I didn't really want to be a computer programmer for the rest of my life I, I enjoyed computers why was
0: that was that just um, not of not, not hands on kind of stuff
1: no or? actually it was very hands on job okay. so but um, and, and I did like that part of it but I I wanted to be the person using the tools instead of building the tools so ah, and, uh, and and I thought you know I'm just not sure I see myself sitting at a computer all day writing code for the rest of my life and, and I know now that you know I probably wouldn't have been doing that right I probably would have moved up into management and things but it just didn't seem like it was coming together for me the way I you know, I wanted it to. And, and so I started looking around, you know, uh, interviewed with Boeing again. Um, uh, and I went and talked to an Air Force recruiter.
0: Why? Just,
1: well, it was just something to think about, you know, it was my thinking. And, you know, cause my dad had been in the Air Force and, and by then this was late 1979, early 1980. And more women were in the military. Uh, things were starting to open up. Right, women right. could be pilots. Women could go to the Air Force Academy. You know, there was just more opportunities for women. And um, and so I went to talk to the recruiter. And like I said, I really was just going to kind of see what it was all about. And the next thing I knew, I was filling out all these papers and going over <laughs> to get my physical and everything. And, and but, then... <laughs> but why the Air Force? So um, well, I think just because my dad had been in the Air Force, and, and so like I said, way. it was just something else to think about, you know, and and uh, it was look, maybe looking for a little bit of an adventure, you know, if you will, and uh, just trying to do something different, right. you know, and and uh, and so then it turned you know it turned out my eyes weren't good enough to go to pilot training. Oh really? So, yeah. So um, so uh, but they said hey you know we need uh, computer science people, and what they really needed was engineers at that time. So they um, so they offered me to come in and send me back to school to get a second degree in aeronautical engineering because they were short on engineers. So they were taking people like me that basically had the first two years of an engineering curriculum and sending us to the Air Force Institute of Technology to get a second bachelor's in aerospace. So was this something that so, they
0: offered you? Yes. Or, or okay? No, so, they
1: offered me. Yeah, they offered so me.
0: So you yeah. went in there not even knowing that this was an opportunity. Right, and right. they said, hold they on.
1: Yeah, they said, hey, how about this program? And I said, sure, I'll give it a try. <laughs> you know? and that was about as much thought as I put into it. <laughs> you know? but, and, and actually, they originally just said engineering. They said it would be a- electrical engineering or aeroengineering. I kind of assumed it would be electrical because of my degree in computer science. But I guess that program was full. So they put me into aeronautical engineering. And at first, I was kind of like, Oh, I don't know about this, you know, but uh, it actually worked out really well.
0: So. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I just find that interesting that they would even consider like, offering this to somebody that wasn't pursuing it because I don't I'm biased because I was never in the military but That's that, kind of the way the military works though. Yeah, yeah. they kind of go yeah.
1: they, they you don't go to them you, I mean for some programs you do. You know, you can go and say, "Hey, I want to be a pilot," you know, or something. Right. But but a lot of people literally walk into the recruiter and it's like, "Here I am," you know, and and then the I've recruiter seen, you know, you're scrubbing. Right. And then the then the recruiter kind of helps figure out which, you know, based on aptitude tests and your background and everything, will kind of help figure out, you know, where they're going to steer you to. So, yeah. Oh, and and okay. so they'll offer all kinds of programs to people, um, you know, who never even thought about them. Now, was there yeah.
0: a commitment that you had to make because of this? Yes.
1: So, yeah. So it was a six-year commitment initially, 18 months of school, and then a four-and-a-half-year commitment after that. So six years total. So
0: so then you, you go to school after you, you sign the paperwork, right? Yeah.
1: So I went to officer training school first. So that was um, three months down in San Antonio. And then when I graduated from there, then then went to AFIT to, to get the degree.
0: So, yeah. It took you two years to get that done?
1: Uh, 18 months. It was six quarters, yeah. Wow. Of nothing but engineering classes. So,
0: yeah. No summer vacation or anything, right?
1: Nope, nope. No, you know, like a week or two between quarters, but that was it. So, yeah. So, what year <laughs>
0: was it that when you graduated from that?
1: Uh, 1982.
0: Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you went off and, and started doing what with the Air Force?
1: So, I got into flight testing at that point. Okay. So, um... Uh, so when I was when I was at OTS Officer Training School, it was there that I kind of started to figure out that if you're in the Air Force, especially if you're an officer, you probably should be flying, <laughs> you know, even if you're not a pilot. Air Force. <laughs> Air Force. That's right. You know, Space Force I guess a little different. You know, there's only so many astronaut slots, right? But, but, uh, but I started thinking, yeah, maybe I really should be flying, and and. Uh, and I wasn't afraid of flying or anything, no, you know. You've I been just, up in yeah, th- I've been up in airplanes all my life because my dad was a pilot, and and uh, you know, like I said, I just wasn't really that interested in it until that time. And so, so I I knew I couldn't go to pilot training. So I said, "Well, what about navigator school?" And I actually talked with somebody, and they said, "Well, it's too late to change your plans. You know, you got to go do this engineering thing, but go do the engineering thing, and then you know, then after you finish it, then apply for navigator training." You because know, my eyes were, you know, probably good enough for that. And so I was like, okay. And so I was about six weeks into my uh, degree program uh, there in Ohio at, at Air Force Institute of Technology. And I met a guy who had been a flight test engineer at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. And he said, "Yeah, I tested inertial navigation systems," and I'm like, "What the heck is an inertial navigation system?" <laughs> <laughs>
0: but but you went,
1: <laughs> but I went flight flight test engineer, and, and you yeah. flew. And he goes, he goes, yeah. And I I got to fly in uh, C-141s and and F-4s, and I'm like. F-4s. You got to fly in F-4s. And, and,
0: so and, now the wheels are spinning. Oh, yeah, They're the going. wheels
1: are spinning, you know, and, I, and I'm thinking, if I went to navigator school, I wouldn't be able to fly in F-4s because women couldn't fly in combat airplanes in right. those days, you know. Right. But, but he could, you know, women could fly in the back seat of these test airplanes. And, and he said, oh, yeah, and, and also, you know, if you, if you like flight testing, you can go to test pilot school as a flight test engineer. And, and then I was really, test pilot school, you don't have to be a pilot to go to test pilot school, you can go as a flight test engineer. And so that was, that became my goal from that minute on, was to, was to uh, so go to you, test pilot you school. you figured you could so, at least ride in the airplane. Right, like, right, like I could ride point. as a flight test engineer, as, even if I couldn't, uh, even if I couldn't be a pilot, so yeah. Um, yeah, but, so, anyway. But they
0: sent you off to get your pilots Certificate no, anyway. No?
1: no, no, I did that on my own. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, okay. yeah. So while I was at AFIT, so while I was at AFIT, you know, then I really started getting interested in airplanes. So they had an Aero Club at Wright Patterson Air Force Base where I was at. And I went over there and um, started learning how to fly. So I started working on my private pilot's license. But they
0: had a program that so, you could, that was somewhat subsidized that you could do?
1: Um, well, subsidized in the sense that they had really good rates. Um, okay. Yeah, so, um, so they, you know, they, they intentionally kept the cost low because it was a nonprofit, right? right? They weren't necessarily trying to make money. So right. yeah, so it was an inexpensive way to fly. And I was flying mostly with retired military pilots. You know, so I learned a lot of the way that military people fly. So what were the so, aircraft
0: that they were using, Cessna 172s and stuff like that? Yeah, or? at
1: that time they were using uh, Piper Tomahawks, Piper Warriors oh, okay. um, was that particular club. So, yeah. Um, and so I got through Solo at that point. It took me a few more years, you know, because I was kind of off and on. It took me a few more years to actually get my private pilot's license, but... Um, but, uh, but I did solo while I was going to school. And then, um, and then when I got out of school, I had asked to go to Holloman because I wanted to try out this flight test stuff. Oh, and, right. Yeah, and so I got to go to Holloman. So I, I moved to New Mexico uh, in, uh, in the spring of 1982 and started out as a flight test engineer. So,
0: what was your first program there?
1: So the first program I worked on, uh, I think the first flight I ever took was actually we were testing an inertial nav system for the B-1. Oh, wow. And yeah, so that was pretty cool. We were flying these long flights on C one forty ones, and and uh, it was fun. We would take the, the the navigation systems and put them on the airplane and fly them around. We had this big reference system. You know, to be super accurate, right, and right. it like took up an entire pallet and in the back of it, you know, something something that you get on turn, your on your phone now, you know, right, is it right. better you know you get better accuracy on your phone now. But you know, we had this giant turn it on thing and the power that, just goes. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 stuff like that. So yeah, and a lot of times when we would transfer from ground power to aircraft power, the whole thing would dump and we'd have to start over again. Oh Sitting there, you know, running the engines for thirty minutes, you know, while everything comes back up again, you know, it's like yeah. It was kind of crazy times, but um, but yeah, so I kind of cut my teeth on on that, you know, doing that testing and and worked on various programs there, and um, and then I got picked up for test pilot school, um, and uh, so how long were
0: you doing the the test engineering there? Or just a, a
1: it was like two years, oh, okay. a little over two a little years. Bit than I yeah, started. I did about two and a half years of flying there, um, and I and I also got picked up for a program where I went back to Affid and worked on my master's degree before I went out to to test pilot school at Edwards. So. Um,
0: so then they send you down to the desert.
1: Yeah. So yeah. So I got to Edwards in um, the summer of uh, 1985. So and started
0: mm-hmm. flying what?
1: So um, so the main airplanes at test pilot school in those days was the T-38 and the F-4. So started flying in the back of that. So yeah, I never did fly the F four when I was at Holloman. So they were they never had any testing going on with the F four when I was there. So I only flew in the C one thirty and the C one forty one. But that was okay. I still had a lot of fun and I learned a lot. So but when I got to Edwards, I started flying the T thirty eight, the F four, and then we now you had
0: to have had your instrument rating to fly these types of aircraft. No, no,
1: because I was just flying in the back seat. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, So yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: I still didn't even have my pilot's license by then. Oh, you're kidding. No, I didn't get that until 1987. Is when oh, I finally wow. finished it. So yeah, I, like I said, I was kind of off and on because I was so busy <laughs> doing other stuff.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, You're having so much fun doing yeah, other things. Yeah, exactly.
1: Right? So yeah, yeah, and going to school and everything. So yeah, but um, but yeah. So um, so I flew those, and then we also had um, we had an A thirty seven that we used for spin training. We also did sailplanes. We would um, uh, some of it was just to you know see how sailplanes fly. I and mean, part of what you do at test pilot school is is you learn how all different kinds of airplanes fly because you never know what, you know, when you get on to a new program, you know, you're gonna be maybe testing. Now, when an airplane, you say that, do you
0: mean anything. like actually going up and flying the airplane yes. or, or do you look at the the data and the, the test books first? Yeah. So you, you it's a lot of book work. Right. I would yeah,
1: typically you do some book work first, right? Yeah. You'll like read the, What we call the dash one in the Air Force, which is the equivalent of flight manual, the Navy calls it NATOPS. Uh, So you'll read that. I mean, you don't necessarily read. I mean, some of these documents are like three inches thick, right? You're not going to necessarily read every single word. (laughs) You know, you read all the basics. How to flush the toilet next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, You know, but just the basics of how the airplane basically flies, some of the major systems, that kind of thing. So you'll read all that before you go up. And and airplanes that we were checked out in, we had to have more knowledge on of rather. Than airplane, like if the sail planes, for example, I mean, there's not much to learn about sail plan plane. I mean, we didn't get fully checked out on those. We were always flying with an instructor. Um, but you, you, know, you still so. have
0: to know the systems and the electrical right. systems and all that, right?
1: And speeds and things like that. Right. You know, you got to know all of your basic stuff. So yeah. And
0: mm-hmm. then and then you keep doing this this flight testing stuff until what year did that?
1: So I did. Um, so I did. Three years um, at Edwards um, working on an F 16 program back on the, and I was back on the test pilot, te- back at test pilot school on the staff there. And then I went off to work on the C 17 in what's called a program office, kind of managing uh, the C 17 at that time hadn't even flown yet. Um, oh, really? Yeah, so this was back in like 89, 90 frame. So I was back in the program office um, overseeing uh, all of the testing, flight testing part of the test program and and coming up with all of the, working with the contractor and the people at Edwards to come up with all of the test plans. And and then I moved back out to Edwards um, to be part of the program um, before the airplane flew its first flight. And I was... What were were some
0: of the difficulties that you had overcome with that program? I can't imagine it was just... All smooth, Oh, no, no, no.
1: no. It's, uh, yeah, anytime you get ready for a first flight, there's there's a lot that happens. You know, there's all kinds of ground testing, taxi testing, uh, you know, pilots checking things out in the simulator. Um, We did a dry run flight um, uh, where we used a, a C-141 as a surrogate for the mm, C-17, right, right. and then we did a dress rehearsal with all the different airplanes that were going to be doing chase, and you know, and we did mm-hmm. all the, you know, tried to get all the timing down and everything, and and we figured out that the F-16 was not a good chase plane for the, Why was the that? C-17 because it can't climb at that slow of an out of a oh. speed. So yeah, on the initial takeoff, so yeah, up and away. Once they got you know up into you know. Um, you know higher speed regimes yeah higher speed regimes it was fine but yeah so we had to we had to substitute an a-37 aircraft which is a little trainer it's a it's an attack version of a what used to be the primary trainer in the air force yeah yeah so it's this little little um aircraft and and uh and it climbed it climbed like a like Abandoned at like ninety knots, you know. Okay. Yeah, and, and whereas the F sixteen can, it's fallen out of the sky at ninety knots. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Right. I can yeah. imagine.
0: So, yeah. what was the the <laughs> attitude, the environment with uh, with your workers, uh, the civilian side, and the the pilots, was that a, a really healthy thing? Or
1: for the most part, was, yeah, yeah. I always, um, I mean, there were there were moments, you know, but for, but overall, I think uh, you. On uh, the flight test side of the house, there are a lot of civilians, and, 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 you know, there's, I think, a healthy tension between the civilians and the military. The civilians tend to hang around for a long time. Okay. You know, they tend to be in the same job for a long time. They have a lot of deep technical knowledge. And so, you know, the military people, you know, we come in with all these great new ideas, you know, and, then, and they'll be the ones to kind of go, yeah, you know, we tried yeah. that five years ago, and here's what, here's why that's not such a good idea. The, were, the, so, were they a lot of...
0: Ex-military people on the civilian side. Uh,
1: some of them were, yeah, not all. Okay. A lot of them were civilians who just came to Edwards and or Holloman. You know, when I was there, a lot of them just started there and spent their whole careers there. So, so were you happy so, doing this? Was this? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was it was always fun. I mean, so, flight testing is is just there's always something going wrong you know there's always (laughs) there's always a challenge there's always a problem to fix you know and uh and and not just with the airplane i mean there's you know there's you know there's scheduling issues you got to deal with the control room if you're you know if you got a control room on your test Uh, there's just so many things that have to come together to to make even one flight work and and it just it's a challenge you know and
0: so something from my perspective dealing on uh, like with uh, FAA side of it. Do you have any sort of a regulatory burden that you have to meet with the military program too?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean we have certain like regulations and specifications and things that you know an aircraft has to conform to. Um, In some cases, some of our aircraft actually maintain FAA certification as well. Oh, really? Yeah, not many, but some of them do. Um, And uh, and but but the big thing is you know as far as the testing goes you know we have our own regulations and processes and every we don't really call them regulations anymore we call them like instructions you know but um but we have our processes that we go through technical reviews safety reviews um, you know to make sure that everything's going to be safe and that we're testing the airplane adequately and, and that carries and, over from
0: one program to the next yes to the next.
1: yes yeah if you've worked on one program well some people would say if you've worked on one program you've worked on one program right but because yeah, <laughs> yeah, you haven't really worked on them all but but there are there are things that are common from one program to another so yeah some of the, a lot of the processes are the same the kind of testing that you do is going to be very similar and in fact one of the things you do when you're testing a large aircraft is you go and you talk to other large aircraft programs that have finished their testing or you know have done other testing and you talk to them to see what lessons learned they had fighter aircraft same thing you know i would assume that when the f-35 started doing their testing before they did that they probably went and talked to the people who had tested the f-22 you know just to just to see kind of what's the state of the art and well, the, there's new
0: systems yeah. that right. weren't in airplanes twenty years right. prior to that.
1: Right, so, but
0: there might be similar systems. Right, right. So right. Airplane still flies. Right, As right. far as I know, right. You have to yeah. create lift.
1: Right, and and like the C-17, you know, that was the first large aircraft that we had flown that had a, a fly-by-wire control system. Oh, yeah, and so that was a little bit different. Um, but we had a lot of lessons learned from the folks who had been on the F-16 program which was the first, you know, fighter that had a fly-by-wire control system. So, um, so you know, even though it's a fighter versus a cargo, the basic idea of testing a, a fly-by-wire system, you know, versus conventional system is is the same. So, yeah. So.
0: Now, did you carry yeah. that onto another program, or was it just the C-17 that you worked on?
1: So, after the C-17, I, I didn't really ever get back to t- uh, testing aircraft. So. From there, I moved on, I had some different assignments, and when I went back to testing, I was back at Holloman Air Force Base again, and then I was uh, back to testing um, on the high-speed test track there, and that was testing like warheads and ejection seats. Oh, is this the rail thing that you (laughs) did? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. and then then later I moved over to um, take over the 746 test squadron, which was my old uh, unit um, uh, that I had tested inertial nav systems in, and by then, they were testing GPS. Um, so I oh, was. Oh, early yeah. days
0: of the GPS. Stuff, yes, very huh? early
1: days of the GPS. In fact, the entire constellation had not yet been fielded when I got to the squadron. So we were, we were still. Doing How many some were of up that. there at that time? I think most of them. I think about twenty. were the is the constellation? Twenty-four. Yeah. I think they're yeah. So they were like within two or three when I got there. Oh, so wow. yeah, yeah. And then and then well now when I was there they started to uh, launch the the next generation of systems as well. So, but at this yeah. time, the GPS um,
0: signal was still being jammed by the military, right? Or not as... how did They, they...
1: had just... Um, so this was after the Gulf War. that They had... I think when I got there, they had just opened it up. Okay. Yeah, I think it had just opened up, or it opened up shortly after I got yeah. there. So, yeah. Because people yeah.
0: were finding workarounds anyway. Right,
1: right. right. So, yeah. Yeah, to get it but to that was back in the in the infancy of like a differential GPS. I mean, that was a that was the hot topic when I got there. Um, you know, things that we just take for granted now. You know, right. so it was twenty five years ago, and you know, people were still trying to figure all this stuff out. So, well, wow, was... like, then you
0: get people that like drive onto railroad tracks because the GPS told them to. Yeah. You know, <laughs>
1: yeah, it's it's a
0: tool. It's not
1: yeah. God. <laughs> Traffic,
0: you know. Yeah. So Okay, so you're you're working on this GPS stuff. Well was that very interesting? What were the troubles and tribulations you had with that?
1: Well one of the biggest issues we had with GPS was because it was so accurate, how do you test it? Really? Because before with an inertial navigation system, even your best systems at best, they're going to be maybe about a tenth of a nautical mile off, you know, you know? so so that's, what, 500 feet. Yeah. And so it was pretty easy for us to have reference systems that were accurate to 50 feet, you know, because we would have these highly tuned transponders. Uh, we have these things called cine um, that are like an optical tracker. I mean, we had ways of, of dealing with, you know, that level of accuracy because, uh, you know, because we were... If you're testing something that's accurate to 500 feet and you've got a a system that's accurate to 50 feet, that's a pretty good reference system. But now when your GPS is accurate to 30 feet, your 50 feet doesn't look so great (laughs) anymore. So that, was, so that was one of our biggest challenges, and, and so we were coming up with just, like I said, differential GPS was, was coming into vogue, I mean, we were coming up with systems and ways to augment the GPS system so that we could get something that was, um, you know, that was more accurate. So, but then the problem comes in is, okay, now people started getting interested in, in, in testing under jamming conditions. Well, if you're jamming the GPS, now you're also jamming your reference system that depends on GPS. So yeah, it's never easy. So, yeah, I know. There's always yeah. Never so then easy. it's like we're back to square one. You know, trying to figure out okay now how do we come up with same question. You know, how do we come up with a with an, an accurate system. You know that that doesn't get jammed, right? So yeah, it's <laughs> anyway. So that all these. Uh, all these kinds of problems are things that testers deal with every single day. So yeah. people often mm.
0: say, well, "Why can't they just do this?" Right, right. It's you not know? that easy. It's so yeah, never that easy. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Never that. So were you flying <laughs> during this time?
1: By then, I wasn't really flying anymore. Okay. Um, uh, you know, that that was after the wall came down. You know, the Cold War was right. over, and um, there was a lot of um, downsizing in the military at, at that time. Yeah, yeah there was that.
0: The payoff, right? That right, they talked about,
1: right? Right. The the the, the post Cold War dividend, you know, the right. peace dividend, and, peace and, dividend. Yeah, and um, so by then there just wasn't as many flying slots to go around. As a commander, I could have flown, but I was like, you know, I got these lieutenants, and they need to fly. You know, they 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 were like me, you know, ten years ago, you know, and they needed to fly. They needed to learn how to do all this stuff. So, so I decided not to fly, so they could. So I did go on a couple of flights, um, just to. You know, just you, you call them supervision flights, right, you know, where right. I would just, yeah, would just kind of go along. Somebody's just, got to see, right, know? to see what they're doing right. and, and 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 see how things had changed since I, because we were no longer testing in the C-130s and C-140s. We were using C-12s, you know much smaller, like a King Air kind of airplane oh, okay. by then. Yeah, and so you know I went on along on a couple of flights just to see how they were using the King Air versus how we used to use the, um, how we used to use the C-130. And so did you have any so, bug
0: in the back of your head that that? You wanted to own your own airplane at some point?
1: Yeah, so that that actually started um, when I was going to... So by the time I got to... By the time I was on the C-17 program, uh, while I was back at wright Pat working on that, they had a really good aero club there. Um, I got my instrument rating, I got my commercial, and then I got back to Edwards, got my CFI, and then I went to um, Air Command and Staff College at at Maxwell Air Force Base, and they had a Cetabria.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> where your love came in.
1: And I started flying the Sotavia. I got checked out in it. I started doing. So Acre. had you flown
0: tailwheel at all before Just this? A
1: little bit, you know, because my dad, um, you know, I went up with your my dad. dad. Had the cub. He, my dad had the Cub, and yeah. I and I went up in that a few times, and I'd flown in the Champ a few times. Um, so I had a little bit of tailwheel The Harvey time. Champ. Yeah, the Harvey Champ. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, um, but uh, yeah. So I got checked out in Satabi. I really, really liked it. And um, and then when I uh, when I got finished with ACSC, so that was in 1993. Finished with ACSC, I moved to the Pentagon. And at first I found a decathlon to rent up in Frederick, Maryland, and I flew that for a few months, and then it got sold. And so this was like January of 1994, and I was like, uh, you know, I just couldn't find any other airplanes to. You know, I wanted to fly aerobatics. You know, and I, right. there just wasn't anything to once, rent. Once you know, do and,
0: something like that, once you do aerobatics in a, a yeah. plane that's capable of it, there's it just opens up a whole. Yeah, world. yeah,
1: and and I wanted to keep flying aerobatics, and and uh, and and so I thought, well, maybe I should just buy my own airplane. <laughs> Again, that's about as much thought as I could put in. Sort of like joining the air force. Oh, maybe I should join the air force to see how it works out. You know, and this is, well. I guess I'll buy an airplane. You know, and well, because I figured I could always sell it right? if it didn't work out. So yeah. So I found a decathlon down in Florida. It was an older one with the you know with the um, uh, the wooden wing still and. Uh, and it was in pre- it was in pretty good shape. It was. But so um, you had
0: that recovered at some point, right? Was yes. That, yeah. 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 I remember so, you telling me about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I flew down. There. Yeah. So I so I went down there and I got the plane and so I got it for a really good price because it really needed to be recovered and um, the engine was okay, but you know it was within, you know. A year or two of prime years. Yeah, was getting overhaul. tired. Yeah, I was getting tired. So yeah, so um, yeah, so I bought the airplane, and then um, I actually had it on lease back for a while, which helped with um, oh. with the cost. You know, that was uh, it really helped me to afford the airplane for the first few years, and then um, and then you know somewhere in there I, I took it back to the factory, and they put on a new wing, uh, and they put on the the um, metal wing recovered it, and then I also had the, they didn't do the engine overhaul, but I had the engine overhaul right. separately, and it was like I had this brand new airplane now. You know, Did, was it, it was, noticeable? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Like, oh it yeah. was
0: crisper and the oh yeah. maneuvers and everything? Yeah,
1: yeah. So, and then you also don't have to worry about all the ADs and everything right. we had with the old wooden wings. So, yeah. So, yeah, no, it was a great airplane. I, I had it for... Do you for, still,
0: do you know where that's at right now?
1: It's, um...
0: Is it still flying?
1: Yes. Um, I believe a woman in Indiana owns it, so, oh, okay. yeah, or... Yeah, I sold it in um, 2011, so yeah, so I had it for 17 years. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah, almost 18 years, yeah. But it was getting to the point where, well there was two things, one I wasn't, I was really busy and I wasn't flying it as much as I wanted to. The other thing too was it was getting to the point, I mean at this point it was, uh, you know, a 40-year-old airplane, right? And yeah. and, uh, and it was getting to the point where every hundred dollar part that would break, yeah. the, the mechanic would get the new part in and they go, yeah, it came in, but it, it, it's not quite fitting, right? We're going to have to make a bracket for it or something, you know, and then my, my $100 part would turn into a $1,000 repair, you know? yes. and, I, and I thought, you know, I really need somebody to own this. I need a mechanic to own this airplane, you know, somebody <laughs> that can make the $900 bracket to go with the $100 part, you know. <laughs> so, And I actually sold it to a mechanic, so yeah. But then I think he sold it to somebody else, too. So, so mm-hmm.
0: speaking of airplanes... Uh, kind of tell us about the family Charlie.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So so my dad always owned airplanes, you know, his from the time right. he was about 19, I think, you know, he always owned airplanes. And and then um, w- when we were living in Louisiana in 1961, 62 timeframe, uh, had four kids by then and no <laughs> longer fit in a, you know, Cessna 170, right? You right. Know, and so... Um, So he bought a Bonanza, uh, which was uh, 1947 Bonanza, I think, somewhere in that time frame, 1949 maybe, somewhere in there. And uh, so it was pretty, still a relatively new airplane when he bought it. Um, And uh, its uh, it's, uh, tail number was 5125 Charlie. And so us girls started calling it Charlie. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then it just
0: but you, became that like, yeah. that was in the family for some time. Oh yeah, it?
1: yeah, because it was in the family basically till my dad donated it to the maintenance school over here yeah. at Everett Community College. So yeah, yeah. That's just so.
0: amazing the stories that airplane could oh, yeah. tell.
1: Yeah, it was in the family for like almost sixty years. So yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. Did you ever get time <laughs> behind this? Oh or? yeah.
1: Yeah, I did a few flights in it. Um, I remember I did my um, long cross-country for my commercial flight in it, for my commercial rating in it. So, oh, my yeah. gosh.
0: Mm-hmm. That's yeah. just absolutely wonderful that you could have that kind of family history in an airplane. And, yeah. And the places you guys must have gone with that airplane were probably all over the place.
1: Yeah, well, mostly just flying around the country as we moved, so Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact in fact i you know looking back on it i think you know, cuz my dad would fly the airplane so and and many times when we moved my dad would fly the airplane my mother would drive with us all of us kids in the car so my dad would you know if if we were like hopscot team together, you know, he'd be done for the day after about three hours of flying, you know, here's my mom driving for ten hours with four kids. Oh, so he's cab. flying
0: the plane.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah and yeah.
0: mom's driving the station wagon. <laughs> That's right.
1: So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when well, we moved out here from Illinois, so you know Did he take kids uh, in the
0: plane or did the sometimes
1: kids have- yeah, sometimes he'd take kids in the plane. It depended on, you know, how many days drive it was and everything, but uh yeah, oh, that's and, hilarious. Yeah, when we came out here from Illinois, that was quite the trick. and we had a bunch of cats at that time, and and uh, we left before he did, um, and we drove up. We got to his parents' house in Wisconsin and when we when we went to get back on the road two of the cats refused to get in the car they just like disappeared you know and so we left them and, and drove on and so then my dad flew up to wisconsin to see his parents before he flew out here and the cats had come back around by then so he brought them out in the plane so yeah the <laughs> same in the bonanza uh, that's crazy <laughs> yeah.
0: and so this whole time that that you're doing this kind of stuff with the family your dad has this propeller under the the bed, which was the title of one of your books. Yes. Which I think is absolutely one of the best titles (laughs) I've ever seen in a book. Because that just, if you're a pilot or especially a builder, you know what that means instantly. (laughs) Yeah. Because we've all, I have airplane parts in the spare room right now at the house. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) hiding airplane parts around the house was just... Uh, Is that how you came up with that title? Was that something that just stuck in your brain? Well,
1: it was my mom, actually. Really? Yeah, because so where the propeller that that spawned the title came from was when we were in Florida. Uh, My dad was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base. And uh, so this was in the early 70s. And there was a guy that was selling a. It was a light combing engine and a propeller, and I don't know. I don't know what kind of propeller. Oh, it so was, there was but... an
0: engine tied to the. propeller? Yes, there was
1: actually an engine that went with the propeller. So yeah. Oh wow. So he bought an engine and the propeller because he had been, uh, he had designed an airplane when he was in college to set a aviation world record. And you know this—he graduated from college in '60, 1960—and his plan initially was to build this airplane right away and go set this world record, right? And, right. And. Uh, well, obviously things get in the way, you know, like the Vietnam War and stuff. <laughs> so, <yeah>. Flying f one hundred, Flying all kinds of other things. Right. So, yeah. And uh, so, anyway, so, so while we were at Eglin, there was a guy that he worked with that had a Lycoming engine and a propeller that he was selling because he wanted to buy something else. And so my dad bought both of them. And... Uh, and he decided he didn't want the engine fairly soon, so he sold it to somebody else. So, oh, um, so he
0: split that yeah, up. Yeah, so he dist- split that up. Okay. So, yeah,
1: got rid of the engine. And then um, and then the propeller, there was really no place to store it. Um, and so it, there was no garage in the house that we were renting. And so the propeller wound up going under the bed in my parents' bedroom. And then every time we would move after that, the propeller would just go back under the bed. and <laughs> And then at one point, my mom said, and I can't remember exactly when this was, probably maybe in the early 90s or something, uh, and uh, I, I remember my mom said, if he ever builds that airplane, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to call it The Propeller Under the Bed. No. <laughs> yeah.
0: That is an awesome story.
1: Yeah, so that is where the title came from. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, but it, so, it's just crazy to think that you're going to have a propeller and you're going to build an airplane around a propeller. Yeah, yeah. So, Usually that's one of the last yeah, things. Yeah. And he well, never did use the propeller. No, he never did. used that <laughs> propeller
1: anyway. So, yeah. But it was an inspiration. So, yeah, yeah. And we still have the propeller, actually. It's hanging Do in my really? room. Yeah, it's in my garage. So, yeah. Yeah, oh, I that, have that propeller. You can't ever get rid of oh, that Oh, no, no, propeller. no. I won't. And then I have all the propellers that went on the airplane that, that he did eventually build, plus the propeller that inspired oh, it. They're yeah. all hanging in my garage right now. So, yeah. Yeah, he told so, me
0: all about how he went through several different propellers. Oh, yeah. Hours and, yeah. And, and mm-hmm. And the testing that he had to do—that's yeah, yeah. just absolutely—but <laughs> yeah. you still have the propeller. That's just...
1: yes, still have it after all those years. So yeah. You know mm-hmm. where
0: that's got to end up. That's got to mm-hmm. end up at the EA museum someday with <laughs> the, with, yeah. with his with his E one, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, that could be. So yeah, yeah, we'll figure out something to do with it. So yeah. A...
0: So <laughs> I also remember, whew, when we first met you, we won't go back that far, but you were uh, in the process of building an RV eight. When I first met you. Or no, what, a one what, design.
1: Was, or, it,
0: was or, it the one design?
1: Or, oh, maybe I had started the RV8. I probably had started the RV8 I by think then. think you had... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably had started it by then. So, yeah. And I'm still starting it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, so where I was going with this yeah, was sorry, that yeah. your dad had a propeller under the bed yeah. for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where are the RV8 parts? Are they under the bed?
1: No, they're not under the bed. So they're down in a spare room in my basement. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah.
0: so the apple hasn't fallen far. From That's right.
1: The That's right. It's a becoming a retirement project. So, yes. So, yeah.
0: Well, you know, if you need help, mm-hmm. I'm there to help. So (laughs) let me know when you're ready to start banging rivets. I'll be there. (laughs) Okay. But that's just great, though. You've got the RV8 project still. You're not giving up on that Oh, no, no, no.
1: I'm not giving up on it. It just got delayed a little bit. It just got delayed. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to jump around a little bit here. But um, I didn't know this until I started doing a little bit of research for our our interview tonight, but you actually have B-17 time. Yes. I want to know all about this. (laughs) Please tell me. Okay, our so, listeners, how you got B17 time.
1: So, this was one of those crazy things that happens that um, so I have a Decathlon. So, this is actually related to my Decathlon that I own now. So, okay. so when I moved back to the Seattle area, um, that was in around the 2012-2013 time frame. Um, there were two guys at Harvey that were buying a Decathlon. And they were looking to buy a decathlon, okay. and somebody told them about me and said, "Hey, she used to have a decathlon. She might be interested in being a partner with you." So I, uh, so I said, "Sure." And so anyway, it turned out that one of the guys couldn't get into the partnership right away because he had, um, he had something else that was going on, and so th- me and the other guy bought the plane initially, and then the third guy got to, um, you know, when he was ready to come into the partnership he gave me a chunk of money you know? and this chunk of money was sitting in my checking account doing nothing. You know. And, and at the same time, literally this all happened within a few days. At the same time, the EAA was doing an online auction to raise money. And one of the things they had in the online auction was a second in command rating in the B 17. No. And so I bid the minimum amount and which, I had the money in my checking account because I had this money that this guy had just given me, right? <laughs> and I probably would have never done it if this money hadn't been sitting in my checking account. <laughs> That's why I had to tell this rather long story right, about right. how this money got to be in my checking account. And uh, anyway, so uh, so I made the minimum minimum bid, and then I was pretty sure somebody would outbid me, right? Well, know? yeah, and so it's, it, you know, it's you like, never get that lesson. right, right? And so I put the minimum bid in, and then and then I remember I woke up the morning that it was because they're two hours ahead of us, right, right? You know, and I woke up the morning that it was supposed to finish, and I was like, oh yeah, whatever happened to that? And I, you know, so I'm you're like kind of groggy. I'm kind of right? groggy, you know. And I'm getting my iPhone in. out, and I'm looking, and 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 literally, I got the iPhone out, and I'm looking, it's counting down. I'm like I see that I'm still a high bidder, and it's like 15 seconds to go, 14, no. 13, and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, and, then, and I got it. So yeah, <laughs> so I was like, oh no, now I have to actually go do it, you know. <laughs> so but yeah, so that was how I did, it. and they they still do that occasionally. They have these auctions where they where they do that. So yeah.
0: So mm-hmm. what was it like? Getting that? Was it was it like this? Wasn't like just a like here, sit in the plane. No, no, this it was, was a full checkout. Yeah, this was an intense checkout. Yeah, out.
1: yeah. So I went back. Um, I went back to. Well, first of all, I got multi-engine current out at Harvey again. I hadn't been multi-engine current oh. for a while, so I went in and flew a, a little bit of time in the. It was the old Apache that they had. Oh right. Yeah. Right, so I did it. Right, right. I did it. I think about two hours and did a little bit of instrument training and everything. And and uh, and then I went back to Oshkosh and I was there for about four or five days. We did some ground school. Um, you know, on all the different systems mm-hmm. and everything, and, you know, then did some cockpit fam and stuff, and then uh, went out and, and flew. So, and it was seconds came in so I was in the right seat right, the whole time. Right. So, um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, and we treated it like a crew plane, right, you know, so, um, so I wasn't, I, I didn't have to do everything, you know, okay. like I could, like when I would take off, um, you know, I would push the throttles up, but then the, the you know, the pilot, pilot in the left seat would help to you know get them all perfect right, and everything right. so Fair just like out. you would do yeah just like you would do with a crew so yeah and um yeah i wound up flying i think about 3 or 4 hours in in the oh airplane just uh you know a lot of it was just flying around doing some stalls and coming back and doing landings doing a stall in a so, B17 so yeah it was you'd be surprised how gentle that airplane was it was so easy to fly it it re, it actually flew a lot like the apache it oh, was really? i was shocked i would i expected it to be very hard to fly, you know, very heavy controls, and it was just a joy to fly. So it was, so, it was so an incredible So you actually
0: experience. got to do a stall? Mm-hmm, And yeah. so pulling back on oh, the yeah. stick, yeah. was mm-hmm. that was it a heavy when it got... No, I
1: don't remember it being super heavy, so yeah. But, but there
0: yeah. was probably a little bit of effort there. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, but, but it was... Because it's, um, it's all cable. Yeah, yeah, but it was, like I said, it was just a joy to fly. Oh, my it was gosh. a very responsive airplane, and... And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. So, yeah, well, mm-hmm. you
0: use the word joy and mm-hmm. that pings another question in my head, because I know you've got multiple aircraft that you've flown, but what was the one that brought you the most joy to fly? What airplane was that? I'd say the F-4 really
1: yeah that was just the one i always had the most fun in because so, it Why? was just well of all the airplanes that we flew at edwards um it was probably the one that resembled a combat aircraft more than any so because i mean the f-16 had most of its combat systems still in it but um but that we flew but it just it just seemed like an airplane that you wanted to go to war, and, you know, really? and yeah, you know, and maybe some of that was because, you know, it, the F-4 actually did fly in Vietnam, you know, and it had a lot of time in Vietnam, and, and I knew about some of the experiences cool. of the pilots that had flown it in Vietnam, you know, because a lot of those guys were still on active duty when I was a, you know, young, young officer, and uh, it just, it was a very honest airplane, and um, it was just fun to fly, and it was... Um, I don't know. I don't know how to explain
0: it exactly, but well, it was I think just, everything yeah. it, it looks <laughs> yeah, you know, mean. Yes. it just yes. looks like an airplane that is yeah is just says don't don't mess right with right me. don't mess with me. So right. yeah yeah, it's very know? sturdy
1: and, and so you're yeah. just
0: sitting in that cockpit, you've got to feel
1: yeah
0: that that yeah you just feel. Those juices of, of that right. coming into you. Right,
1: there's a lot of adrenaline, so yeah. And uh, and then
0: the power you know. that those engines have got has got to oh, be yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah, they've got a lot of power, so yeah. Pushing the
0: throttle forward. Yeah, yeah. you definitely... You get a kickback on yeah. takeoff.
1: Yeah, yeah, so yeah, because I remember flying the T-38, you know, you hit the afterburner of the T-38, and about the only way you know it lit was by looking at the nozzle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: the yeah. temperature
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. the f4 you hit the afterburner you know as you get ready to take off and it's like whoom. i mean you can really feel it you, you know and it. You, yeah it's like you can hear it you can feel it i mean it's uh it's an afterburner yeah <laughs> and, and, it, wow. and that and it just goes i mean the f4 is actually a really fast airplane i mean it really goes when you need it to so yeah and, and right. it accelerates very quickly um it, uh, it's amazing how fast it accelerates when you're pointing downhill. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah.
0: I had an experience uh, once down at Reno, right after the races, and we're packing up the day after, and the two F4s that had flown in as demo, mm-hmm. you know these guys are doing it just because they can, right? Mm-hmm. They, yeah. They took off and just did this shallow bank right over the top of the campground. Uh-huh. Yeah. And to the point where we felt the heat yeah, yeah. of the engines. <laughs> and yeah. The, you know they knew <laughs> that what they were doing. Oh yeah. That yeah. was just so amazing. And you get an idea of the size of that airplane when they're over the top of yeah, it too. Yeah,
1: yeah, So yeah, no, it's just a cool airplane. In fact, I remember when I was driving back out to Edwards when I was moving back from Ohio, um, you know, to work on the C seventeen program, and and I got up. Uh, I, I was just a little bit past uh, Fort Irwin, is it Fort Irwin there? That's up at um, uh, it's up it's at the intersection of fifteen and. Uh, Highway 58. Anyway, either. yeah. Anyway, but it's uh, so anyway. I've just gotten past that. I was on the main the main highway to the north of Edwards that, that heads down into Edwards, and I'm driving along. And in George Air Force Base was still open at that time when they flew F4s, and they were they were very nearby as well. And anyway, I'm driving along Highway 58, and I'm thinking. I wonder if I'll see some F-4s, you know, flying around. And all of a sudden, Ooh. two of them flew right over the top of me at about 200 feet, you know? Oh. <laughs> you know, and I looked over to the right and, you know, and they're flying off in the distance. And I was like, oh, there they are. You know? So, yeah, it was just so cool. Yeah.
0: So the converse of this, of, of the one that brought you the most joy, what was the one that was most difficult to tame? What was the one that you, you could care less if you ever had to sit in it again?
1: I'd, I've ever flown an airplane that I didn't want to sit in again. So <laughs> I'd have to.
0: <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, but what was the most difficult one then? What was the one that you felt like it really kind of taxed you? Like
1: I, you know, I'd say probably the most challenging airplane that we flew at Edwards at that time was um, we had an old Beaver. Oh,
0: so, you kidding?
1: Yeah. yeah, we had a Beaver, and um, and uh, you know and we used it because the tail you know it was a tail wheel airplane and and um and it was a challenging airplane to fly so why was yeah. that
0: just because just, it was so sluggish and heavy on Yeah the it was heavy
1: on the controls and and um and it was, well, and the tailwheel aspect as well, right? right? You know, a lot of our pilots, very few of our pilots had tailwheel time before they got into the program. Did so. that
0: have a locking so? tailwheel? Like, does that, the beaver tank? Yeah, I
1: can't remember now, so yeah. Okay, but, I, uh, I don't know beavers that much. Yeah, so. yeah. But I but I do remember that airplane was, was challenging to fly, so. Um, In it comparison
0: was, to, the, like, the Harvey uh, Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, so definitely, yeah, yeah definitely more challenging, so okay. yeah. Yeah, but but a lot of power. I mean, it was a I mean, it was in some ways it was a fun airplane to fly. So, but it was definitely a definitely a challenging airplane. And, and you know, and it was just it was not a very comfortable airplane either. It was um, you know, although I wouldn't say most fighter airplanes are comfortable, but the <laughs> but the wow factor <laughs> not you meant get is to be. Well, Yeah. <laughs> I would say
0: maybe today that's probably uh, the newer airplanes are much more pilot comfortable. Pilot comfort yeah. has kind of become yeah. a thing, right? Oh
1: yeah, cuz when I when I, I remember when I was flying the F four and um, chasing F 16s and the F four the the um, the F four the um, pressurization system is really bad, and so you can't put the canopy down. You, you can't put the canopy on the ground because you can't stay cool. So oh. so you're sitting out at the end of the runway, canopy's up. It's a hundred degrees out. You're dying of. The, from the heat. Oh yeah. And you're waiting for the F-16 to show up that you're chasing, and the F-16 finally gets there, you know, 15 minutes late, and he's got the canopy down. And he's got the canopy, got down. The canopy down right. AC's his, on. In his and nice and 70 degree you, uh, know? <laughs> you know.
0: And we're humidity controlled environment. <laughs> yeah,
1: we're dying, you know, and, and of course now we take off, and now we're drenched in sweat, and so now the air conditioning kicks in, and now we're freezing to death because. We're, you know? <laughs> So, but, but I wouldn't give it up for anything. So it was, yeah, it, it was a great experience all around. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I can imagine. Um, let's just keep going with this theme a little bit right now. And and one of the things I've always liked to ask people, I have as many experiences in aircraft as, as you do, is if money wasn't an object, like, hey, you just won the, the multi-billionaire... What airplane would you go buy the next day what would that be
1: oh gosh um i'd probably buy dean cutshall's f-100 <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a very good choice
1: yeah because it's a two-seater so you can take somebody with you yeah because so, yeah. that was originally a trainer right yeah yeah uh, mm-hmm.
0: A gorgeous airplane yeah
1: yeah so.
0: And your dad loved flying that. Yeah, yeah. No, I
1: think it'd be, it, it either that or I'd buy an F-4, um, although I don't know. Is there a civilian F-4? I don't think there's a civilian F-4, so you'd have to, like, import it and all that kind of stuff, and it'd probably be a real headache, so, but,
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. like what John Sessions had to go through with his MiG. Yeah, I with didn't... the MiG, so, oh. yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: which he doesn't own anymore, I think.
1: Yeah, no, that somebody else owns that, again. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the F-100, your dad, when I was interviewing him, he was that was his plane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He loved that plane. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that would be a great fit for you. I'm sure that that you would probably enjoy it as much as he did. Oh, yeah. But I, you wouldn't yeah. want to pay the fuel bill. No,
1: no. But you said there was uh, unlimited, <laughs> right? That I, that I had a billion dollars or whatever, <laughs> and I guess yeah, so I wouldn't have to worry about it. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm surprised that you went with a jet, though, and not a propeller plane. I don't know. I, I, I just mm. kind of picture you more as a propeller classic person than a jet, but maybe that's <laughs> just my perception. Well, I
1: think if money wasn't an option, that yeah. maybe I would do a jet instead. Maybe so, both. Yeah. yeah, maybe both. So maybe get an extra or something. <laughs> well, so. what,
0: what propeller plane would you buy then?
1: Um, I I probably would buy an extra. So. Oh
0: wow. Yeah. So. And those aren't yeah. cheap.
1: No, they're not. So yeah. I've looked into them before. And have, you ever,
0: have you ever flown one? <laughs> just
1: once. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I got a little bit of time. Are they yeah. as fun as they look? They are. So yeah, um, they're kind of like a pits on steroids. Uh-huh. If you've ever been in a pits? Yes, so. I have. Yeah, yeah. So. I've been in pits mm-hmm. and a Christian
0: Eagle, so. Okay, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. snap rolls and an eagle are just incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's like, well, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> That's so I imagine right. X is <laughs> probably the same way. Huh? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Enough about all your flying and all that kind of fun stuff. Let's let's talk a little bit of philosophical stuff. And what I mean by that is if uh, somebody came to you and said, Hey, you have this, this great career through the military. Do you recommend that to somebody? That, is that a path that you would tell somebody oh, to, yeah, to definitely, take? Oh, yeah, definitely. Why, why is so. that?
1: Um, just because the big thing about the military i mean there's downsides to the military don't get me wrong but Mm -hmm. um the big thing about the military is you can have a well-defined career path you know what you have to do to get promoted you can take control of your career And it doesn't mean that if you say, I'm going to be, you know, I want to be a general officer on day one, that you're necessarily going to achieve that goal. Right. So, uh, you know, because not that many people get to be generals. Um, But they generally, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of help along the way. Really? You know, they, they don't, when you go into the military, there are lots of people along the way to mentor you, to take care of you, to help you figure out what your next assignment ought to be. Um, to tell you the different career paths that you might be able to take, the pros and cons, you're not alone. If if you if you're, if you're in the military and you're not figuring out what what you need to do with your career, you're not talking to the right people, you know. are so just kind of floating. You're, you're not, floating. Yeah. And there are people that do that, right? You know, there are oh, yeah. people that or in any career know, there are right, people that Right. Right. And, and I've mentored people that, you know, it's like, "Hey, you know, if you should do A, B, and C and they go off and do D, E, and F instead, you know, okay, fine, you yeah, know. Whatever." Yeah. yeah. So, um, and that's but,
0: something I've always encouraged people to do is, "Hey, don't yeah. be ashamed to ask somebody." Right.
1: Right. In the military, they they, they 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 don't just encourage it they they actually make you you know they they will give you career advice even if you don't want it you know and
0: do you think and, that that's a, a something that today's generation is a little bit more skeptical to do than generations earlier to go um, ask for that help
1: I don't think so I actually get quite a few young people reaching out to okay. me um, I'm on Twitter and um, even though I'm not on Twitter as as um, as my civilian position. Right. Um, I they do know that I'm a retired colonel and if they google my name they can figure out what I do, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. And so I actually have quite a few young people that have reached out to me on Twitter. Sometimes they just reach out to me at work, you know, they can find me if they're in the Air Force already, you know, they can right. find me in the in the address, you know, the email address lists and and um, they reach out to me all the time and ask me questions about going to test pilot school or advice on, um, you know, I'm going off to pilot training now. Uh, you know, can you talk to me about test pilot school? And, uh, or should I go to test pilot school in the first place? You know, right. and, um, uh, and, and just asking me about careers as an engineer. I mean, I, you know, I, people reach out to me all the time, and I'm more than happy to talk to people. And, and that's, I think that's the thing that's really nice. I mean, when I was a lieutenant... I had colonels, full colonels that were already mentoring me and telling me, you know, you should do this, you should do that, here's some ideas. Um, they really take care of their people. So, and they, the, the military, I think, more than anybody really knows that their people are their most valuable resource. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way, you know. <laughs> And I'm not saying it's perfect, but but people really they they it's not just a it's not just something they say it they really live up to it. But so. but let me and, and mm-hmm. I might
0: be putting words in your mouth here. And correct mm-hmm. me if I am, please. Um, but I've always believed that you get out what you put in. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: is that something that you find true in the military? Yes. If you mm-hmm. want to have a bad experience, you're going to have. You're going to have a bad experience. That's but right. if you want to mm-hmm. make it fulfilling. You can do that.
1: Yes, yes. So yeah, and and there are, you know, like I said, it's not perfect. There are obviously life bad, isn't perfect. There are bad actors out there. That's right. There are things that happen that shouldn't uh, even in the military. Um, but I would say for the most part, yes. If if you go into the military with positive attitude, and you do what people tell you to do, and you ask a lot of questions, and you show some initiative, you're going to have a good career. Yeah. You know, you don't necessarily have to be the that's right. Step off the brakes. Keep moving forward. Yes, exactly. So yeah, you know, you don't have to be the the, the sharpest person in the room to, you know, to have a great military career. It's that engine. It's that motor you got. That's right. It's the motivation. It's the self-starting. It's the ability to ask questions and to and to work as a teammate. You know, yeah. Being being a part of a team is very important. So yeah, it's not about the individual. It's all about the team. So, yeah. If yeah.
0: they ask you to do something that you feel that you're too good to do. <laughs>
1: That's right, so you know,
0: yeah. What kind of an attitude is that, right? <laughs> yeah, so... It's, it's always be part of that team. Yes. Well, that's I, I love hearing that because I've, I've heard the opposite of that from other people. But, to be honest, and I won't name names, that those are the kind of people that had a bad experience because that's what their expectations were.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're,
0: they're the kind mm-hmm. of people where no matter what you do, they're the smartest one in the room and everybody right. else is an idiot. Right, right, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Sometimes you just have to subjugate your, you know, I mean, there are many times when I've been on teams where I felt that this is not really the right thing we should be doing, but it also wasn't something that was gonna get anybody killed or result in, you know, uh, yeah. you know, wasting the taxpayers' dollars or something. And so you just go along, right? You got to know when to... You, pick you know, your battles. That's right. Pick your battles. I think that's the most important thing in the military is is if you see the truck about to drive off the cliff, then yes, you better go do something about it. Right. So, you know, but if the truck is just... Uh, you know, taking the back road instead of taking the freeway, you know, maybe just go along for the ride. Are you still going forward? (laughs) That's right. Are you still making progress? That's right. And sometimes it's all about developing people, right? Sometimes you have to let people make mistakes so they can learn from them. That is is huge (laughs) advice right there for people. Sometimes
0: (laughs) as a parent, I would sit back and I'd just... I call it the the hot stove lesson, right? Right. It's like you can tell the kid the stove is hot. Right. But until they go up and touch it for right. themselves.
1: Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and hopefully they all they have was, is a little singe right, on right. their finger. And they look yeah. at you like, and you're like,
0: yeah, that's I, right? I, now you know, stove <laughs> is
1: hot. Right? That's right.
0: Okay, something else that I find absolutely uh, amazing and something that I find very interesting and I think I can't think of somebody else um, that I've ever sat down with that could answer this question better. but do you believe that the last fighter pilot has already been born? Do you think that the the era of the fighter pilot sitting in a cockpit is done?
1: If you had asked me that question 20 years ago, I think I would have said yes. Um, I don't think that's true. Okay. Uh, I do believe there is going to be a place for, uh, you know, for for pilots in aircraft, for fighter aircraft and bomber aircraft, for many years to come. So, um, I, there there is a lot that we can do with technology now. There is a lot that we can do with mm-hmm. you know remotely piloted aircraft, even autonomous aircraft. Uh, but I just think that for this foreseeable future, we're going to still have a lot of human beings involved. Now, I can see a situation where you don't have very many fighter pilots anymore where maybe you right. have a fighter pilot that is up there uh, you know leading a you know a, a pack of you know drones, of or, drones some or something right right you know right they right you might have this lone pilot up there with 20 drones you know behind him or her you know right. uh, you know whereas today you might have you know 10 or 15 pilots so um so i can see a situation where we're going to have a lot fewer um, but I just think for the foreseeable future that we are going to continue to have piloted piloted aircraft. So
0: do you think that's I mean. because of the decision making that the yes. human can make versus yes. Yes. some autonomous drone?
1: Right, right. And 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 just having a human being that actually has eyes on the target has eyes. And and I don't necessarily mean eyes on the target itself because sometimes you're shooting at a eyes distance on, that you can't see. Eyes on the scene. Eyes on, on the, the scene. What do they call that? Yeah. Uh, the,
0: you know what I'm talking about, the area that you're flying in, right? Right,
1: right. the whole area that you're flying in, right. the situational awareness. Situational awareness, um, that was the word. Yeah, yes. yeah, you're just, I just don't think you're ever going to get that level of situational awareness with machines, at least in the near future. So, you know, until you can bring that imagery back into a room to where it looks as good as a pilot who's sitting in the cockpit, I think you're going to continue to have people in airplanes. So, yeah.
0: But is there also that that? Mm-hmm. that Gut feel,
1: right, right. There's that instinct, and and you may not have that instinct if you're sitting a thousand miles away. Yeah. So, yeah. And whereas if you're if you're sitting there and you're and your life is on the line too, you know, and, right. You know, that's the other. That's
0: a great point. I didn't think of that. Yeah, but your butt sitting in that seat.
1: Right. So, yeah. So I, I just think that we're not we're not there yet. So yeah. You think and, we'll and ever we, be? And there? we may never be there. So yeah, yeah. Because. Huh.
0: I, I definitely agree that that we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growing up on Star Wars, uh, you know, I, I think of how Hollywood envisioned wars to be fought. Where right. You, you know, your
1: X fighter, X-wing fighters, and your yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know,
0: all this kind of stuff, and and yeah. and now you see Hollywood with all these these drone armies that are going out that right. are, mm-hmm. are either bred or created, you know. So. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I fight with that, I don't, I hate war, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a a person, you know, the soldier is the worst person that loves, that, that likes war, right? Right. The the last Mm -hmm. person, but when they, when they uh, take, and they, what's the word, when they, when they create this aura about war, and how, how great it is to fight a war.
1: Yeah, no, there's that's not we right. want to avoid the war in the worst way right. so yeah And, and, so, when, yeah, and yeah. when
0: you can throw a drone at it right. i think it's that much easier right. to right. do it right. so taking the human out of it right opens so. us up for a, the vulnerability of making war easier right right that that's kind of what, what
1: there there is a lot of concern about that right is that when you when there are no longer consequences for humans then you right. know, then that it makes it easier to go to war yeah, in the you first place. Yeah, just push so. a
0: button and something blows up and right, walk away. Yeah, yeah it's, mm-hmm. it's something to consider. Um, the last thing I have before we wrap it up uh, is just kind of giving you an open mic here, which is, do you think that the aviation that as you see it is improving, is it on a decline and. What, what do you see aviation, and not talking just general aviation, but just aviation, uh, everything from military to general aviation, do you think that we're doing better today than we were doing uh, 50, 60 years ago? Or do you think that things are kind of getting stale? Where do you think the direction is?
1: Well, I think aviation is certainly a lot safer nowadays than it used to be so okay. um i would agree the, with that. yeah i mean even from the time when i was in the military until now it's gotten a lot safer um when my dad was in you know i mean the guys were getting killed in air airplane accidents like every week you know sometimes really? every day i mean it was just horrendous the amount of people that we killed in aviation accidents back in the 50s and 60s and and even when i was in it seemed like we had you know multiple multiple ac- you know multiple accidents every month you know in the air force and and some of that was just the quantity of airplanes we still had in those days right we're a much smaller air force now than we used to be but in general it, aviation has gotten quite safe i mean nowadays when a plane crashes it makes, it makes headlines, yeah. yeah, you know. And, and back in, back when I was in the Air Force, there were planes crashing all the time and nobody heard about them except people in the Air Force. Because it yeah. was so common. Because it was very common still, so yeah. And it's, it's not common nowadays, which is good, you know.
0: So yeah, I'm, go I mean, back you're... to the movie The Right Stuff, yeah. right, where right, they're, right. they're showing crash after crash after yeah. crash.
1: And it's not just military aviation. I mean, commercial aviation has gotten a lot safer. You know, general aviation is safer. Everything is safer. Um, there's a lot of automation. I think a lot of people have concerns about automation, that in some cases the automation, you know, people are getting away from being able to actually fly the airplane and a deterioration of stick and rudder skills because of the automation and, you know, how do we, how do we, I think there is some, um, I think there is some value in, I think those concerns are valid. So um, I do think that, I do worry that, you know, these younger kids coming up, are they really getting the stick and rudder skills that they need? I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of people say people should learn to fly first in a glider. You know, because you really have to learn how to use the rudder, right? You really right. have to learn how to do uh, power management in a glider, you know, and that's why I mm-hmm. got
0: I bought a one forty, yeah. So that my son could go get his Yeah, ticket. and a tail dragger, right? And I got yeah. a tail dragger because mm-hmm. I felt that he was gonna learn what a rudder is.
1: Right, right. You're gonna get those basic stick and rudder. You don't skills, want something yeah.
0: that's overpowered because yeah. now he has to know about energy management. Right, right. So yeah. Which is the two biggest basics in flying an right, airplane. Right,
1: right. And, and I worry that people don't get those basics anymore, the stick and rudder skills and the energy management. Um, that was one of the things I really remember going through test pilot school is how much it was ha- energy management was hammered into us through the entire course. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, every airplane you fly, every test point you do, every test mission, it's all about energy management and being efficient and using your energy and you know, is just yeah, and and I, I think, think
0: that's a hard concept for some people to to grasp. Yeah, yeah. that and, that it is an energy, right, that you're and, controlling.
1: And that's why I think you know, learning aerobatics is, uh, oh. you know, again, I don't know, not everybody can necessarily learn aerobatics. Not everybody likes to fly upside down. But I think being, I think learning aerobatics made me a better pilot in general because oh, it teaches it. you all about energy management. It teaches you to really really use your rudder right i mean that some of that comes from being a you know from the tail dragger too but uh but i yeah i do worry a little bit about the deterioration of skills so um on the other hand i also think that um, i'm starting to i have a lot of faith that we are going to get a flying car one of these days (laughs) (laughs) and we will get to the point where you don't necessarily have to have a lot of skills to fly an airplane just like you don't have to have a lot of skills to, to drive a car um, but I think we're always going to have right. need to have skilled pilots, though, because because um, what I would see is so so
0: they're so inefficient with what they have with the flying. Exactly,
1: car. right, right. So the flying car is going to be a very inefficient way right. to get around. So that's going to be your your masses, right? right. And you're still going to if you're going to be a fighter pilot, you're not going to be in a flying car. You're going to still be in a fighter plane. You're going to have to do the stick and rudder and all and the energy yeah. management and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but I I remember about ten years ago. Um, I, uh, I first got introduced to the little quadcopters and I, oh, got to, yeah. I got to fly one of those little quadcopters. And I realized it, this it, it is so stable. You're not really flying it. You're not controlling it. Yeah, you can put you're the controller
0: it. down and yeah. it'll just hover.
1: You're commanding it, yeah. yeah. And you just say, you know, you you, you push the stick and say, go. To, it? it just, right, you're commanding. You're not flying. And and I remember thinking, of course, this thing was, you know, it's tiny, right? It was right. about a foot in cube, you know. And uh, But I remember thinking, if you could scale this thing up, you could... You could have a flying car, right. <laughs> and and that's exactly what's happening, right? If you right? can take so, the skill yeah, yeah. out of it, right, then right. you
0: have a flying car, right, right. And then, right, what you get into then is you get into your efficiencies, right, 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 and and then at once if you can conquer that efficiency, right, kind of thing, you know, well.
1: And now, how do you deal with the navigating part, right? With the so because now you know, are we going to have like a hundred million flying cars, or you know, so? But if you can use the, what I'm thinking is if you can use the current infrastructure we have for our roads, and you're just flying above the roads, yeah, right? And if possible. you can figure out a way to deal with the intersections, and figure out a way to you know, and with with auto, with uh, artificial intelligence and everything, maybe there's a way to. Have uh, little uh, you know stoplights in the sky, I would, yeah, like
0: the
1: Jetsons. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, maybe there are little you know, and somehow, and they're virtual, right? Because right. you're not going to have actual stoplights in the sky, but maybe they're right. virtual. So you're you're you know you're screaming along and all of a sudden, oh light come, you know and there's like something that like a red light that goes on in the cockpit you know you got to stop and. And, and maybe it does it automatically for I'm you. I'm sure that's so. what it
0: will be. It was, it'll just be autonomous. Yeah, yeah. No you're just
1: putting the route in that you right. want to go and, or just saying where you want to go. So, yeah. I
0: think that the, another factor that they're going to have to overcome, though, is the noise. Because yeah. if you've ever heard one of these yeah. mm-hmm. fly there, they yeah. are not quiet. So
1: they got to figure that out, too. So, yeah. I mean,
0: so. you put 10 of them in the air yeah, flying mm-hmm. over a neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> everybody leaving for work at, at 8 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to be one noisy neighborhood. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: But yeah. <laughs> I think the technology is going that way. And, mm-hmm. and with this um, the ability with the ADS-B tracking yeah. that they have, mm-hmm. um, that's probably going to help aid in that. But I, I honestly believe that... My kids generation or my grandkids will have a car that they will say, Go pick up Timmy at soccer practice right. <laughs> and yeah. the car will just right. go right just goes and gets Timmy. Goes yeah. and gets Timmy from right. soccer right. practice, right. right?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think we're almost there. I mean there's there's I mean I mean a lot of people when I talk about these things they act like I'm crazy, but but can you imagine? I, I, I mean, I can't even imagine what aviation is gonna be like in a hundred years, you know. I mean, we might all have personal spaceships by then, right? You know, and and, a pack
0: that you put on that flies you. Right, your little jet
1: pack that you fly around. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? And you know, and sometimes people say, "Oh, there's no way." But then I look back. I, I give this. I've given a presentation at EAA at Oshkosh a few times where I compare the avionics that you had in the airplane and the avionics that you had in 1953 when EAA first started, and I show that, and it's like a a, a, um, what's that, the Mechanics Illustrated airplane, you know, yeah. it's got, it's just your basic airspeed indicator and that kind of stuff. So that was in 1953, and then in 2013, 60 years later, you've got, you've got RV-8 cockpits right. that rival a 747, right? right? I mean, who would have thought in 1953 That you would be able to have the same level of avionics in a home built airplane that you have in a 747. Or better. Or better even. (laughs) Right. 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 Yeah. And and so now what's gonna happen sixty years from now, you know, we can't even imagine it, right? So yeah. yeah.
0: I think one Mm -hmm. of the big problems that airlines are gonna deal with is is how they just keep packing more and more people in. Mm -hmm. You know, but it's that economy thing where you can fly to Sacramento for sixty nine dollars.
1: Right, right. You know.
0: So, you're going to pack more people in, right? If right. you want comfort, you're going to pay four times as much right, for right. that. So, that's the scale that they're <laughs> yeah, working on. Is that on. balance? Yeah. Is that, is that mm-hmm. balance? And, and how do you get rid of that? Well, much like we've done with cars, everybody has their little tin box that they drive around to work, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, Nobody yeah. takes public transportation. I shouldn't say. Nobody, but...
1: Depends on the city. Yeah, there's some cities that still have very strong public transportation, but but yeah.
0: people are more comfortable in their little tin box than they are getting on a bus.
1: Right, you have a lot more autonomy when you can direct where to go. That'll happen. Mm
0: -hmm. And and once you and I get done solving all the world's problems, then (laughs) we can worry about that. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, and, and and actually, if you think about parts of the world that are still developing that maybe don't have a good road infrastructure, if you have oh, yeah. flying cars, you don't even necessarily need a good road infrastructure. No. You can save a ton Become of money. secondary. Yeah, 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 you, yeah exactly. You, you maybe only need a couple of good roads, and then you fly every place else. So. Right. And then right now, yeah. the state
0: of Washington is dealing with a big problem with all these electric cars mm-hmm. because they're not getting the tax revenue off the fuel yeah. tax. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to... Oregon has got a pilot program with mm-hmm. GPS... And they're charging them. Tax oh right,
1: right, yeah. Based
0: on their GPS, and, yeah. And Washington is considering that right yeah. now. Yeah. So that's
1: a good point. Yeah, if you're not buying gas, you're not you're not paying for the roads. Yeah. So, so.
0: roads mm-hmm. have got to get paid. Right. I mean, we just
1: got to figure out other ways to make people pay for it. Yeah. Either that or mm-hmm.
0: take them off the roads. Or right? take them off the roads. That's is an it other easier way. Yeah. to maintain a road or an airspace? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, I think it's a lot easier to maintain an airspace, so yeah. Yeah, you don't have to bathe it. (laughs) That's right. But you're always going to have to have roads for some things. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: But if if you have a, a smaller fleet, commercial fleet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Easy to do that. Mm-hmm. Easy to do that. Yeah. All go. right. Are we done? I think we're so. done flying. Yeah. We're done fixing all the world problems. Figuring <laughs> oh, out great. Where aviation's going. Yeah, it was a fun discussion. This has <laughs> been absolutely wonderful, leave. I, hmm. I look forward to this. Um, you are a hidden secret with the chapter. I hope more more people, more members, reach out to you, and uh, maybe some young people to, to to reach out to you for that mentoring. I think it would be a wonderful thing. I wish you would have been a mentor when I was. You know, younger, I think uh, that would have really helped out a lot. But <laughs> well, you're you. an inspiration. Well, you thank really you. really are. I'm, Appreciate you. you. And
1: I'm hoping to get more active in the chapter here. I'm uh, going to be moving back up here permanently within another year or so. And,
0: and I will give you the to, last yeah. minute to plug.
1: Oh, my new book.
0: Your new book that's coming out.
1: <laughs> the Fly Girls Revolt. It's the, and It is the story of the women who kicked open the door to fly in combat. Um, So it's the story of mostly the military aviators, women military aviators of the 70s and 80s who were the first women in the military to fly as military pilots were restricted from flying in combat uh, until the doors opened in 1993. And so it's their story. Uh, Most of them never actually got to fly combat aircraft because they were too old by the time the laws changed. But they fought so that the younger generation could... could, um, could have the that's the right great. to do that, and and it and it's not just about the right to fly in combat aircraft. It's it's the right of commanders to have the best people right. flying in combat aircraft. And it, and if the best person is a woman, then and that's why would you take the second so best? So wonderful
0: guy? about our country <laughs> yeah. is that we can make <laughs> that progress. Right, that we continue so, to make that progress as time. And I think that's a great story, yeah. and I'm sure that will inspire a lot of uh, people to. To seek that kind of a career. I hope
1: so. Yeah, and and also my generation just hasn't been really. Um, there's not been a lot written about my generation. You know, there's been a lot written about the WASP from World War II, right. and there's been a lot of written about you know current women fighter pilots and and stuff. But my generation is kind of a lost generation. That's a great point. We really yeah.
0: don't have a hero. Yeah. There's, you know, there's just no movies not. made of that kind of right
1: a, right of, of the women of that generation right. who were the first to fly military airplanes in the military who were the first to go to the military academies who were going to test pilot school you know and all you those need kinds of things. to talk to Spielberg about <laughs> this. Yeah. Well if you can get me in the so. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll give you his number as soon okay, as I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well thank you David. Thanks, it's Arlene. been great.
0: Okay. And now the news for January 2023. Due to the upcoming February 14th Valentine's Day holiday, the Board has decided to push back the February meeting to the 21st. Same time with doors opening at 6 o'clock for social hour and formalities starting at 7 o'clock. Make sure you spread the word about the scheduled change to other members so that no one shows up on the 14th disappointed. Speaking of disappointing someone, don't forget that February 14th is Valentine's Day. It's official. Charlie O'Neill has assumed the treasurer role for EA Chapter 84, and David Weber, me, will step into the vice presidency seat vacated by Jonathan Fay. I personally would like to thank Jonathan for all of his hard, and exceptional work that he has done for the chapter. It's hard enough to find people to volunteer, and even harder to find people who do a great job at it. Jonathan did both. I know I'll have to step up my game if I want to keep up with his standards. And also, thanks go out to Charlie O'Neill for taking on the role of treasurer. Our chapter funds will be in good hands with Charlie. And a little broader news, the deterioration of the FAA's computer system became headline news on January 10th when the entire NOTAM, Notice to Air Mission, system crashed, causing the FAA to ground all commercial flights and affecting some GA flights as well. The FAA said in a statement that the crash was caused by an engineer's error during overnight maintenance, saying that he simply replaced one file with another. The FAA said the crash would not have happened if the agency's new NOTAM system had been in place. According to the FAA, it has been working on replacing the system for years. A reauthorization law passed in 2018 required the FAA to modernize the system, but that system has yet to be implemented. Congress has notified Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg that they want a detailed response to a number of questions they have about the cause of the system failure and the progress of implementing the new NOTAM system. The FAA has requested another $30 million in their budget, in their words, to eliminate the failing vintage hardware that currently supports the NOTAM system. Expect to hear more about the FAA modernization issues as Congress tackles the FAA reauthorization in upcoming months of 2023 as the 2018 reauthorization expires. Well, that's a wrap for this month's podcast. Spread the word about EA Chapter 84 podcast to your aviation friends and family. It's available for download on most popular apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Make sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and give us a five-star review. I would encourage you to listen to Eileen's father's interview in episode four. I'm sure you'll find Arnold's accomplishments to be just as impressive as his daughter's. As they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I hope you remember to file a flight plan for next month's podcast. Be sure to find the latest news by following EA Chapter 84 on social media apps like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, this has been your host, David Weber. And remember, stay off the brakes, keep moving forward.